So the neuro, um, neuro behavioral modeling, it's basically identifying the difference that makes the difference in behaviors that accelerate and help people to be the best they can be. So um, a neurobehavioral model is studying someone's decision-making capacity, and we talk about it as both internally and externally. So an internal modeler, for example, would analyze, study, research, and interview someone and find out what specific thinking, thought processes, beliefs, views of the world do they have that help them get to the point where they make decisions, for example. Welcome to the Marketing Your Practice podcast, where we guide natural health and wellness experts through the pitfalls of marketing. Each episode, you'll learn simple, effective, easily actionable, and heart-centered marketing strategies. And here's your host, Angus Pike. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, friends. Welcome to the Marketing Your Practice podcast. Now, my guest today loves working with entrepreneurs and business owners who have experienced rapid and exponential growth in their business, yet they feel overwhelmed, unfulfilled, and stuck. He's a visionary who sees the big picture in all that he touches, and he's committed to supporting others to see their vision more clearly and to help them courageously step into it. We're going to talk a lot about that today. Now, with a background as a doctor of chiropractic in a fascination in the area of neuroscience, he's also a certified neurobehavioral modeler. I'm going to ask about that in a moment too. He's also a business and life coach. He is Jim Karagiannis. Jim, welcome to the show. Thank you, Angus. Thanks for the invitation and uh, very excited to be here. Buddy, that sounded like to me a little bit of deja vu, given the first time I kind of read through that intro, it was like I had a bunch of marbles in my mouth there too. So, um, The surname or just the neurobehavioral modeling? Well, the, it. believe it or not, the neurobehavioral modeling beforehand yeah. had at least half a dozen goes at it. And yeah. it's not that tricky a word, but for some reason today, I've got a bit of uh, cotton wool mouth. Um, <laughs> but we got there in the end. And this, is, I, I feel like I first invited you on the podcast it's got to be nearly 12 months ago. That yeah, it has. it has. And just through a whole series of factors, uh, things haven't worked out. So it's, it's great that the planets lined up. And it was actually only even just a few days ago when you said, look, I'd pay, you know, round five. How about we try this again? Yeah. And it just worked out. And, and it was like, let's do it. And it happened within like days where previously there hadn't been any opportunity. So excited to be here. If, if nothing else, buddy, I'm persistent. So bordering on stalking, yeah. but um, okay. I understand. Hey, listen, for um, our listeners that might not know a little bit of your background, um, I'm really, we're going to spend a lot of time today talking about getting started. It's, it's where all the momentum needs to come from. It's the hardest thing to do. But before we kind of get into that, can you give our listeners, our viewers, a little bit of a background of your story of what kind of brought you up to where you are now? Of course, of course. So, um, by training and profession, uh, I'm a chiropractor and I graduated uh, from uh, RMIT University back in 1992, uh, 93, sorry, my mistake. And uh, I met my lovely and beautiful wife who has been a previous, um, uh, basically interviewee on your program as well, Bettina Tornatora. So we went through the program together and uh, graduated, um, have been together since, so it's approaching 28 years now, happily, happily, happily married. Um, mm. And we started our journey in chiropractic and we traveled throughout uh, Australia, practiced in uh, both country and city, uh, back in Melbourne now. Um, got two fantastic, beautiful um, adult sons uh, in, in the process. And along the way of practicing chiropractic, I was always been inspired. That's all I actually wanted to do. Uh, as, a, as, as a young, as you know, as a five, six-year-old, I had the, the spark that went, that's what I want to do. And about eight or nine years ago, um, I looked at 
my impact having having a bigger impact and that started my coaching specifically with healthcare professionals and teams and as a result over time you know a lot of the principles that we hold dear in chiropractic specifically um, were transferable to other areas of world and life and so I was getting more invitations to support and help people outside of industry so that's where it's led me to I've kind of followed my own path and curiosity and enjoyment and passion and that's where it takes me now interestingly with entrepreneurs and, and business owners and helping them navigate through challenges that they may be experiencing with, with both their business and their life so so let's talk a short about, story of that here yeah. I, I let's let's parlay into that what's a neurobehavioral modeler okay so neurobehavioral modeling is essentially its genesis is in neurolinguistic programming NLP so the neuro um, neurobehavioral modeling it's basically identifying the difference that makes the difference in behaviors that accelerate and help people to be the best they can be so uh, a neurobehavioral model is studying someone's decision making capacity and we talk about it as both internally and externally so an, an internal modeler for example would analyze study research and interview someone and find out what specific thinking thought processes beliefs views of the world do they have that help them get to the point where they make decisions for example yep. and an external modeling would be looking at someone looking at their behaviors actions routines and rituals so um, when i when both patina and i are certified in this it's about trying to identify the key ingredients it's kind of like snapshotting and going this was a turning point right now what did it take for you to make that decision you know so if you ever watched anybody who's in and, and the reason why it got to entrepreneurs for me is that I modeled and interviewed and profiled and coded the decision-making ability in people who are in high stress environments, high, um, what we call VUCA environments for people who don't know are volatile, uncertain, complex and ambiguous, Right. which is, which, so I modeled and researched the people in those environments in terms of how they process the world, how they got to have certainty and uncertainty. Yes. And, then back we have created a blueprint and a model that can actually teach others to use so it's effectively you know how do you get into the heart and mind of someone who under crisis has the decision making whether or to make great decisions uh clinically emotion uh, unemotionally mm. in the best interests of the the situation and so neurobehavioral modeling is the ability to code any person and any test person you're looking at to be able to pluck out the gold, the difference that makes a difference, which then allows you to then teach it to others. So when you were looking at these individuals, entrepreneurs, yep. what, did, what did you learn? What were some of the key things that you discovered in, in, in studying them? Yeah, well, some of the interesting, the people that I interviewed weren't just entrepreneurs. What, what I did is I looked at, you know, who are the most, what are the most uh, VUCA type environments you could think of? What are the most, and so the term initially comes from the military where you can imagine you're going into a battle, you've got volatility, you've got uncertainty, you've got complexity, you've got ambiguity, you don't know what's going to happen. And so I, I interviewed those type of people. I interviewed the, the military, I looked at people who did tours of duty in really a hostile, uncertain um, environment. I interestingly also um, looked at um, firefighters and first responders you know, the people who are running towards the fire rather than away from the fire. So how do you override your own natural instincts of fright and flight? So I had to try and get into the head 
of these people and find out how they processed their decision-making, how they processed the world, how they got to the point where they could override their normal physiological responses to mm. run. And uh, that's the process. And so interviewing people from broad ranges, I also interviewed people who are Forex traders, who are people who mm. have ultimate uncertainty within financial markets, you know, and how do you regulate your emotions in order to make great sound decisions when things are oscillating uh, ridiculously. And what's been really fascinating for me is that when I did this study, it's been the, it's been the perfect catalyst for the world that we've been living in, in the last um, three, six months, particularly. So how do you find certainty and uncertainty? Mm. And it was about coding and identifying the traits, the behaviors, the beliefs, the attributes that people have to be able to a package it to be able to then teach it to others. That's effectively what neurobehavioral modeling is. It tries to identify the difference that makes a difference no matter where you look. Can, can you share with us perhaps two or three of the things that were really in common with each of these individuals under these yeah. circumstances? Okay. Yeah. So effectively what, you know, for someone to, um, to be able to go into harm's way in order to um, make a decision or to help, they had to have a belief system or they had to, sorry, they had to have a value structure that was so high in, in duty. In, had to, they had to have a, 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 a basically a capacity to override their own self in the, in the scenario because they were looking for greater good. So, you know, people who were first responders or people who were running into buildings, they had a sense of duty and honour in that process. And so they could override their normal physiological responses because it, it was something different. So it was a lot higher. Um, and by the same token, people who, um, who had a worldview that was abundant versus scarce, if they always had this worldview that supported them to be expansive in their thinking, um, that no matter what will happen, I'll work it out. Um, if they had that type of worldview that helped. And, and I guess the other part of it, interestingly, and this is where I find it, it's been really relevant with entrepreneurs is their, what's called their paradigmal uh, reference point. So the paradigm, the way they look at a, a situation. So if there's complexity or if there's a problem in a situation, they had the, 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 the pre-frame in advance to say, what I do is I find solutions. And what I do is the harder the scenario is, the better I get at finding problem solving capacities. Rather than it being an arm wrestle, it's a dance. Yeah. It's an opportunity to, so all the, the, the pre-frame and the context around which we, we label a situation becomes the experience, becomes, you know, it's the meaning you give that. Mm. And so anytime people had a fluid and adaptive model to which they applied to any situation, as well as a value higher than self and their own self needs, they were able to do things that most people can't do. I can kind of get, if we look at some of our first responders, for instance, I could kind of really easily see how they could create a value system that this is not about me, yeah. you know, I'm saving lives type sort of thing there too. Where did that fit in with the Forex trader? Yeah, the Forex trader particularly was about emotional regulation mm. because you had uncertainty. You know, when we're, when, when we're dealing with $50,000, $100,000, $200,000, a million dollars, then, you know, I was always reminded of this example when I, uh, there's a book called The Golfer and the Millionaire. And it basically said that, you know, if you're putting from like a foot away and you putt it and there's nothing on the line, 
then you can do that. That's all okay. But if you're mm -hmm. putting for a million dollars in the same spot, it's the mm -hmm. story you tell yourself about what that means that then starts playing with your head and your heart and your mind and everything. So the emotional regulation that was really relevant, it, it, I kind of went off on a tangent um, with the Forex traders to look at that. But effectively, when, when, I, when, when someone's dealing in billions of dollars, mm. you know, there's quite a bit of backlog and quite a bit at stake. Sometimes your own skin in the deal, sometimes everybody else's. And you had to be able to regulate your emotions to, to, to make great um, decisions. Yes, you had pre-existing um, rules that you followed. But I don't know about you, Angus, but if I had to deal with billions of dollars of other people's monies and livelihood, it would, I'd have to be certain in myself. I had to get to a place where I was making good, clear decisions. I could clear and get rid of all the noise um, and the white noise around me to be able to, to act unemotionally or as unemotional as you possibly can. How does, um, you know, a practitioner kind of listen to this now, if they're thinking, well, I'm not dealing with billions of dollars and I'm not pulling people out of burning buildings. Yeah. You know, I, I'm a chiropractor. I've got a really important job. I'm a naturopath, yep. Chinese yep. med practitioner, dentist. Yep. How do you take something like these concepts that you've learned and then apply them to the practitioner and then next patient that's about to come in the consultation room? Yeah, look, this is a great question because the, I oscillate between, like my, my background being in health and particularly around the principles of chiropractic, what I've loved about them is they're, they're consistent through not only just one specific profession, but when you talk about all the other professions, there are principles that are transferable across all platforms. Mm. And so what comes into it, the overlay of all of those areas is courage. Mm. and I guess this is the real theme of what we could be talking about today is there are six forms of courage right? and, and each and every one of them are applicable to every practitioner that you mentioned and every human on a day-to-day, -day, mm. right? So the first form of courage, which is akin to the first responders or the people in, in, in battle, are what we call physical courage. Mm. Now, most people can associate with that and they can look at that and say, okay, physical courage um, I'm jumping into a burning building. I'm doing putting my body on the line in harm's way to help somebody else. But physical courage is quite often really in that context is what's called bravery. Yes. And so effectively that form of bravery is what in society is honored. It's represented, you know, there's, there's valor awards for valor. So that's really bravery. And most times people associate courage with just physical courage. I'm going to go out on a football field, um, I, I, by background, I've got a martial arts background. I'm in, into jujitsu. So there's a physicality and a, a physical courage that, you know, anytime I step on a mat three, four times a week, I potentially have a limb busted. Mm. So you, you've got to override that um, physical courage. So that's the, so that's effective one. The next one is social courage. And the, I guess the next five will probably be more relevant to a lot of the, your audience you're talking about and, and your listeners because social courage effectively means being prepared to put yourself out there to share your view your, and, and, and have the possibility that could be rejected. Yeah. So you're talking about a paradigm of health that many of, of your listeners would be, would be involved in sharing health from a different perspective that people traditionally have come across. Yeah. That's courage. You're going to be challenged by that. So being able to be comfortable leaning into that and being prepared to get some pushback if that's not the view that 
the general consensus necessarily have, right? Mm. So uh, I always always say, you know, being a healthcare professional, people have said to me, how is healthcare and how is chiropractic relevant to the rest of the world? And I say, well, we are the biggest disruptors of healthcare. We're the Uber of health. And, mm. and no one comes along and celebrate who's got an established um, hierarchy in an environment. No one's going to come along and pat Uber on, on the back and say, thank you for... Um, stepping up the industry and making us you know hold up to a higher standard they're going to challenge that yeah comfortable um going against consensus to socially communicate that that in there so the next one is you're looking at um uh, in, uh intellectual courage yep. so intellectual courage is really the ability or the willingness to challenge your own beliefs and assumptions and start the process of asking yourself different questions so you could be, you know, within the context of practice, you could be in practice for 20 years, but you effectively haven't evolved beyond year one. You've just repeated the same pattern 20 years over. Yeah. And so the emotional courage involves testing your assumptions, you know, testing your beliefs, testing whether, you know, in, in this environment of evidence-based is looking at that and being prepared to, um, test and assess your assumptions based on what 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 com, um, evidence is coming through. So, irrespective of what industry, um, the next one is is really emotional courage. And emotional courage is the willingness, and it's been getting a lot of um, publicity of um, particularly of late with the work of Brené Brown in terms of the areas of vulnerability mm. and being willing to be vulnerable and being able to not oversharing, but being vulnerable and say, Hey, yeah. this is what's going on for me. This is how I'm processing the world, the view, what's going on. So that's, that's another form of courage. Um, the next one is moral courage. So moral courage is looking at doing the right thing because it's the right thing. Yeah. And you know that it's the right thing to do, but you're not prepared to do it. So there's a level of courage and confront that comes with that. And it's being willing to take that first step within that realm. And finally, the last one within that context is spiritual courage. Yep. So spiritual courage is looking at your own spiritual de um, development. It's not necessarily religion or denominational base. It's just your own spiritual growth. You're looking at your own purpose and the willingness to ask yourself the tough questions about really what am I here to do? What am I doing? And, and, and challenging yourself to, to, find more meaning find more purpose and and really follow your path and your calling in life so the reason why we we tease those out is quite, quite often people hear the word courage and they could be understandably confused and thinking hey i'm i'm a solo practitioner in a practice i'm not running into burning buildings to save people mm -hmm. but you know what there are times there are moments there are defining moments where you know you needed to say something and you didn't mm -hmm. Or, or, or you didn't, you know, you, by being invulnerable, you didn't have compassion. You weren't able to put yourself in the scenario that someone was in there as well. And you weren't able to connect with them at the level that you, that you were as well. Or, or, you know, like morally courage, you know, there'd be, there'd be times where you need, you know, there is something that you need to do and you didn't. And all of those take courage in one way or another. And it's being prepared to take the um the step that leans into each and every one of those mm. uh, so if we start to kind of because we laid a bit of a foundation to begin with of taking the first step regardless of what form of courage is developing 
uh, I was going to say developing the courage to have the courage is a bit of a kind of, uh, it's, a bit that's true, but it's actually true. It's actually yeah. true. It's, it's because what happens is, um, you know, and then there's the process of fear, right? Yes. People go that you've got fear and fear is, is like, we're only born with two fears, fear of loud noises and fear of falling. And somewhere along the line, we develop all these other fears right based on experiences, wounds, stories we tell ourselves. So fear is basically optional. You can determine whether you buy into fear. Yep. Right. And, and, but, but courage is intentional. It's actually a deliberate action that you can take. Yes. That will move you to where you want to go. So you don't have to buy into fear. You can acknowledge that that's what's going on for you. Yeah. And, and process it, cycle through it, get to a point of grounding, find a big compelling reason why you should take action mm. and then take it. And there is a resiliency training very much like weights or lifting or exercise. There's a process of getting battle hard or strength in all of those. Yeah. Let's talk about that. Okay. So I'll give you an example. Like the, out of all those ones, the, the easiest one for me is physical courage. Mm. I've always been, you know, having, having had the advantage of being taller and bigger than a lot of people, I had a physicality about me mm. that, gave me, I think in my mind, an advantage. Coupled with a gladiatorial mindset, I was like, yeah, sure, no worries, that's me. And that, that defined my identity, my type A, A personality, all those kind of things. The biggest area of challenge for me would have been emotional courage. Mm. It's like, hey, I'm, I'm, and you know, people like Lewis Howes put, um, wrote a book called Masks of Masculinity, which is a phenomenal book. It talks about how we, as men particularly, um, mask up and put a suit of armor up to protect us. Yes. So we want to, we want to appear invulnerable. We want to appear bulletproof. And so consequently, I would never show that emotional um, vulnerability to the level that I do and have done now. And so I was 10 foot tall and bulletproof, mm. right? Everything, no matter what was going on. Yeah, I'm good. Everything's fine. Everything's okay. It's not fine. And uh, I shared recently that, the real big turning point for me was I've done a lot of personal growth and development work, both in of my own, um, being on, on cruise and et cetera. And I got to a point where I was seeing the impact of male invulnerability that it made me sit up and wait, take notice. So within a period of two days, um, number one, I went to a funeral of uh, a really good friend of mine's son who was in his thirties who committed suicide. Mm. And the very next day, um, you know, a colleague, you and I both know, Jim Skivalidis, runs a program called, um, basically called I'm Just a Man, which is dealing with male suicide. And the very next day, they were talking about how, because of a whole lot of reasons, um, the, the male suicide rate is, is astronomical. Mm. And so those two events just came and hit me like it was like an epiphany. And I went, look, you know what? We as men suck at the ability to communicate emotionally what's going on. And we think it's a badge of honor. We think it's a strength, but it's actually a deficiency and it's a weakness. And so I made the intention to communicate that. And I have, you know, a lot of people who um, I mentor, who are directly and indirectly, who look up to what I do. And I went, this has got to change. And so I started the process of willingly stepping into my greatest fear which was um, being vulnerable. And so I started to share my fears, my challenges, 
And a really fascinating, interesting happened was that ability to model it. And that, that's really what neurobehavioral modeling in a lot of ways is model a behavior that I wanted to see as a change created shift, created change. I had, I, where people, where I'd known people for years and years and years, suddenly they turned around and went, dude, I, I really feel connected with you. I get where you're coming from. I, I, you know, there was a, an aloofness or a, uh, or around who you were before, you know, and that would have been just my protective mechanism. I can actually really see who you like, what you like. And my impact and influence went through the roof. Mm-hmm. And my ability to connect and, and have an impact with what I said, what I communicated was so much more impactful than what I was trying before. Why? Because I think it was more authentic. And so that was without doubt my greatest fear was vulnerability. And, you know, expressing what I had, what I felt was perceived weakness. Mm-hmm. And th- that was the pathway for me to, to, to go through that. Sorry, you're going to say? No, no, no. I, I, I find it, I'm, I'm fascinated by vulnerability in the idea that for me, my fears in around vulnerability is that it will isolate me. Is yeah. it when in actual fact, my experience of it, much like yours, yeah. is that every time I'm prepared to lay down those walls. Yeah. So it, it actually brings people closer to me. It does the exact opposite yeah. of what the fear. Yeah, a hundred percent, a hundred percent. And and you know, like vulnerability, like an emotional. It's not necessarily. It is fears, but like I'm more likely to want to run in front of, um, you know, the All Blacks, mm-hmm. than to get up on stage and sing on Australian Idol. You know, because that's emotional exposure in a lot of ways. And some people, what's interesting is that some people can look at that and go, that's no big deal. And yet they're terrified about something else. So it's not you're courageous and you're courageous across all those six. It's a work in progress. And you're 100% right. One of the biggest thing that I learned is that when I was being authentic to myself by being vulnerable, that was really my gateway to it. um, I opened up people who were probably waiting for me to do that. And the moment that I did, suddenly was like, hey, you're here. We've been waiting for you. Mm. And the people who, you know, what's the old saying? The people who mind don't matter and people don't, uh, who matter don't mind. Mm. And really, I, I got to a more authentic um, place within myself. I got comfortable in my own skin. Um, I started, you know, within practice when I was, when I was practicing in there, and I've really scaled that back now these days. What was really fascinating, and this is the, the biggest thing, I, I, went, I went off and did a, a retreat for five days mm-hmm. and it was all about fear, vulnerability. And a lot of the clients that I was seeing were alpha male, warrior, gladiatorial types, very much like myself. Mm. And what happened is I went away, came back five days later, I walked into my office, into my room to adjust, you know, to take care of people. And suddenly all these people, all these people who previously were gladiators, who were like type A personalities, would get up, look me in the eye and burst into tears. And again wow. and again and again. And I went, what the hell? What's happened? What's changed? And I went, me. And by virtue of me changing, it's almost like I gave them permission to go, it's okay. And they could drop the guard and the connection and the, and the quality of the communication and the connection I have with these people has gone through the roof significantly. Mm-hmm. So I've gotten to the point where by being courageous and really communicating vulnerability in that way, it, it even sets off a different energy vibration aura around who you are, your approachability. Like I've seen it where you change your persona, you come home, your dog or cat are different. Yeah. They can feel it. 
And I think anybody who's in a healing space and healing environment who does work on themselves that gets to a more authentic expression, you're going to attract more of the people who you want to spend time with anyway. Yeah. It's, it's interesting that you kind of bring up the, the animal thing there. I'm reading some, I, I've got a big German shepherd who's often a, he's a working dog with a very high drive who if he had his choice, he'd be out there catching bad guys. So that's, he's, yeah. he's um, uh, inexhaustible and a beautiful, beautiful boy. And so I'm reading some dog training books at the moment there. And one of the books is talking about the three things that all animals need is um, exercise, discipline, then affection. He said they all, they need it in that order. You can't, and he said that dogs in the wild never get anything for nothing. They have to work to get stuff there too. And I have really changed around my energy with Conan in terms of being much more regimented. His yep. exercise was always quite high, but I've stepped it up again. But I, his discipline, I've really put through the roof. And he's calmed down yep. enormously in terms of... And some of it with regards to discipline is just how I show up around him. Yep. And there's this kind of idea of when he's around now that I, I just want to show up as the leader, as the alpha yep. dog in, yep. in the yep. house here. And it's quite interesting because over the last couple of weeks, I'm kind of cautious how I say this because I don't want it to stand a wank because when we kind of think about the alpha dog there too, not with a masculine type of way, but I brought that same energy into practice with me the last couple of weeks. It's been stunning how calming it's been. Like just yeah, yeah, stunning. Yeah. yeah, well, you know what you say? I 100% agree with you there. And I don't reckon you're off there at all too, but at all because we had, we, we've got a, a dog as well. She's a, a soft-coated Wheaton. And we had one of these old, we were having some challenges. She was barking. We couldn't work out what was going on. So we bought this old, old school type, you know, dog training whisperer. Mm. And really what he did is exactly what you just said. Is he actually said, look, you have to, there's an order that they respect and you have to be um, energetically, you've got to have certainty and control. And they've got to know that you're mm. in charge. Mm. And so, um, and, and it was like one session, he retrained the dog and it changed everything. And we just had to, basically change how we were interacting and mm -hmm. our dog felt it straight away. But you're right. If you go into practice, whether you're a dentist, a my therapist, whether a Chinese medicine practitioner or what have you, chiropractor, osteopath, whatever, people energetically will feel that certainty within yourself, that, mm -hmm. that decisiveness. There's, there's the, look, I'm here to help you. It's this way or that way. Yeah. They'll feel it. And the yeah. people who are on the fence, sometimes they'll go, okay, I'm out. But what will happen is that you'll endear yourself and draw more people who are drawn to that decisive part of them because that's really what they're looking for in a health provider, someone who's actually um, going to be there looking after their best interests, who can lead them, mm. who can keep them accountable. Yeah. So there's so many times where, and this comes into the emotional courage element as well, where you know, leaning in and having those tough conversations with our practice members, our clients, when you know that they've said to you this is a priority but their behaviour isn't, reflecting that so totally. i've i've when i've lent in and had that conversation whether it's with coaching clients or, or what have you it takes the relationship to another level either they'll say you're right i'm out in which case i go great awesome well, it's been great helping you you know that if you if you um ever want to come back here we're here for you but what it does for the people who weren't towing the line they suddenly have this you actually are the person for them because you're keeping me accountable so I've had those discussions where I've said, hey, listen, I'm just curious. When we first started, you told me this was a priority. 
and we outlined that outline schedule. Now, I'm upholding my part of the bargain by helping create the vision for you, telling you what's possible, but keeping you accountable. So is that the priority or not? Because if it's not, that's okay. But if it is, I've got to let you know you're not exhibiting or, or taking control or behavioral um, responsibility for your part of it. Now, what do you want me to do about that? Mm. And almost without exception, people will come back and go, you're right, thanks for being the leader. And it solidifies our relationship. So it doesn't take away from, it actually reinforces what you're there to do as a leader, as a health leader. I, I think our listeners, um, well, intuitively perhaps, you know, as you went through those six different levels of courage before, there would have been one of them, if not two or more, that stood out that they know, I need to step up there. So as they're listening or watching this now and they're wanting to take that first step towards expressing more emotional or moral, spiritual intelligence yeah. there as well, where do they begin on that journey? Okay, well, the, the, you mentioned it earlier on. It, it is a process, it's like a, a muscle building process. You don't go from zero to 100 mm. immediately. It's the graduated process. So you might look at this and go, okay, what capacity do I have right now? Like if I'm a person who's not very vulnerable, what are three things that I could do that would stretch me a little bit, but would move me in the direction I want to move to? Yeah. Whether it's in physical courage, whether it's in emotional, it's in social. It could just be that, you know, if you're in a, if you're in a situation where you, you're a pleaser and you just want to tell people what they want to hear, Mm. what would it be like if you stood up and said, hey, have you considered this or started the process? So it's really a case of identifying mm. really three steps that you could take in any one of those areas at your pace, at your level, because some people, you know, have got a, a different risk tolerance and risk profile. So you work within what someone can tolerate and before you know it, incrementally, it's called, the, you know, the basically daily habits. It's yeah. the things that you do consistently that over a period of time, even if it's 1% a day, yeah. shifts you along the trajectory that you need to get to. Yeah. So I kind of identified that, you know, what was perhaps holding me back was, you know, this uh, social courage. I, I wanted to, you know, given that we're on a marketing podcast, mm-hmm. you know, I wanted to create some content and start to share out there really what I stood for. Yeah. And that, you know, I, I've got this grand vision of what it could look like. And am I right in saying, look, the, let's just put the grand vision over to the side there too. But what are the what what would be some first one, two, or three steps that I could move that would be in that direction, that are a little bit outside my comfort zone, yeah. but not overwhelming? Yeah, totally. And so the the vision is important because it shows you what direction you want to get to. Yeah. And so you know, I think it's really clear that you go, where am I now? Where do I want to get to? Yeah. And having the vision of what what's the ultimate objective? What where are you going towards? Because yeah. if you don't have a vision of where you're going to, you're going to be um, parlayed into any direction uh, in there. So number one is getting really clear on your vision and where it is that you want to get to. Number yeah. two, where are you? And number three is what's the first step? So um, you know, the, uh, it was um, Martin Luther King always said about, you know, not worrying about the staircase, you know, and I'm paraphrasing it here, but basically going, we're worried about what step 18 is. Yeah. We really should be worrying about step one. Yes. Once you've done step one, that first scary step, you suddenly go, hey, I survived. I didn't die. I'm okay. What's the next step? And incrementally, you're up at step 17 or 18 before you know it. Mm-hmm. But, but you've got to know that you're climbing up the right ladder or the right staircase. Otherwise, you're just climbing for climbing's sake. Mm-hmm. That's not actually getting closer to where you want to get to. I, I love the metaphor and I remind myself of it. I was driving home last night from Geelong 
um, on the Melbourne freeway there too. It was incredibly foggy. The last day before we got Yeah, your last day before <laughs> lockdown. Yes, <laughs> if anyone wants to date stamp. <laughs> but it was interesting. Incredibly foggy. So the visibility probably wasn't much more than 100 metres. And yet it was interesting how many of us were really comfortable heading along at 100 kilometres an hour mm. because that's all we needed to see. I didn't need to see any further than that. I was able to drive safely with that. I would be able to take evasive action. And it's just such a nice for me, metaphor, reminder of often how it is heading towards that. You know, if I've got a life vision, a practice vision, a goal there too, I don't need to see the last steps until I get towards them. But what are the next steps now? You know, checking, am I heading in the right direction, having that vision in, in around there? What are, what are some of the mistakes that you see people make? You, you know, your clients when you're coaching, when they're wanting to step into greater levels of courage, whatever realm it would be, what are some of the mistakes that people make? Um, that's a great question. Um, by mistakes, I think, um, you know, I'll, I'll share my own personal experience and yeah, I'll, I'll share my own personal experience and then by extension, um, it'll explain what I see happen a lot. So, you know, I, years ago, I, I ran a marathon in preparation for my 40th. I was, uh, it was a goal. I said, right, by the time I'm 40, I want to run a marathon. Mm. And, um, Year 39, I clicked over the calendar and went, holy smoke, it's this year or I'm, I'm actually, uh, I'm, I'm not basically congruent with myself. So I, I made the, the, the commitment to run the marathon. Now, 32 kilometers into a marathon, I tore both calves. Ooh. So the last 10, yeah, it wasn't fun. So the last 10 Ks were absolute murder, but I got through. So I, I had, um, I set the goal. I wasn't happy with this. So next year, I'm going to do it again. And I started training. Everything was going well. I was increasing the running, 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 but I wasn't enjoying the process and I was hating it. And I was going out there and hating it and hating it and hating it and hating it and running 35 Ks and being miserable. And um, I didn't have the situational awareness or I didn't give myself permission to go, hey, you know what? The priority of the goals changed. Yeah. Just because that was the vision, that was the goal, doesn't mean it can't change. And so I was so locked in. One of my both strengths and weaknesses is I can get so laser focused on an outcome that that becomes the only thing almost to the point of obsession. And so that is really good at getting stuff done, but not great in terms of having awareness for everything else. So it was Bettina, my wife, who actually helped me get to the understanding. You go, Hey, listen, is the goal still the priority? And it was like, no, I don't think it is. Well, why are you doing it? Well, cause I said I, I was going to, well, that's yeah. not a good enough reason. And so what I have gotten to with a lot of our clients is for some of them, they might start coaching for what they perceive is one reason. But what happens is that we uncover and unravel a bigger piece. Yep. You know, so for some of them, they started in a career, they came in and started having coaching around that, but it's actually led them out of the career because we got to core truths. So I think if there's one big thing that I think would be a big takeaway is having adaptability to be honest with yourself and get to core truths. Yeah. And just because, I mean, I'm in the path now, you know, I mentioned earlier on my greatest, uh, you know, what I, all I ever wanted to do was, was be a chiropractor at five years old. And I'm at a point now where I'm almost stepping out of, of a hands-on practice. Bettina already did on my, because I'm following the, um, the spiritual courage I was talking about. Mm. knowing that my work is taking me to a deeper, different level, not necessarily a better one, but just one that resonates with me and I know is my truth. 
But because I was on this path, because I spent five years studying this process, the part of me that's going, well, you're not going to give that up. You, you can't change. And it's like, why, why can't you? So it's being open and adaptable and honest with yourself to go, this version of me got me to this version of me. But now I realize there's something else that's really making my heart sing. And in order to do that, I need to let go of the good to go for the great. Yeah. And that to me has been the most challenging thing. I've sat with it for several years now where I've been able to reconcile in my mind. If something's a one or two of enjoyment, it's long been gone in my world, you know? Um, but when something gives you eight and nine level of joy, but you're chasing a 10, it's a much harder thing to let go of something that's really good in order to go for great. What's going to really juice you and inspire you. So to me, in a long-winded way of explaining your answer, it's, I think it's number one, getting clear of what is it that's giving you joy and what's giving you fulfillment in your values is number one. Number two, to have the emotional, I don't know, the situational awareness and the courage to be able to challenge your path and go, is this still doing it for me Yeah. in this format? And being okay if you want to do things differently, just because everybody's doing it one way, that doesn't necessarily mean that's exactly what you need. Or yes. that's what's going to resonate with you most. And, you know, the, the Latin, the, 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 the genesis of the word core in Latin is, um, is heart, courage. It's basically being truthful with what's in, what's in one's heart. And to me, that's the ultimate expression of courage is getting clear on putting to words what's in your heart mm. and basically living congruently with that. It, um, it takes a tremendous uh, you know, amount of courage to stop you know, uh, particularly if you're quite a driven person as well to say, you know, uh, the matter of just achieving the goal for the sake of achieving the goal, because I said I would achieve the goal. Yeah, yeah, I can, I can see what what comes along with that too. I want to, because the reason I I love having these kind of conversations from here is that so myself included, still now less than perhaps a decade ago of when I'm wanting to continue to expand and grow as a human being and serve and lead more too. I'm often looking and tempted to look for strategies and techniques, tools, those kind of things there too, instead of coming back to expressing more of me. And in many times I look for these things because they're easier than becoming more courageous for me as well. It's been full of, so many wonderful little kind of reminders for me. I, I'd never ever thought about courage in any way other than bravery. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's been quite kind of eye um, opening there as well. And I want to encourage our listeners. It's such a very simple but profound model of where do I need to kind of step my courage up, and what some things I could do soon today. You know, that would have that would push the boundaries that might not be the actual end result that I want to, but would have me kind of heading in that direction there too. So, Jim, I want to um, I, I want to acknowledge you for and thank you for putting in all that time or effort and effort, you know, to take concepts like this, to bring them in, to simplify them, to pop them in a framework and a model that can help so many of us as practitioners better serve our patients. So, thank you firstly for that. And my pleasure. Secondly, if our listeners want to know how they can reach out, I, I love your Instagram posts. I've seen firsthand the increase in emotional courage that you've shown there too. Um, there are many times I've sat down and what you have written there has had an impact on me as, as well. If people want to 
find you? Where do they find you? And can you share perhaps, because I know there's a couple of different, different ways that people can work with you in a more formal way as well. Can you tell us about those? Um, yeah, sure. So um, our coaching organisation is called Lux Consulting. Bettina and I uh, launched that um, after a genesis of, of coaching predominantly health care professionals and their teams. We've moved to, uh, we kind of cross over. And when we talk about emotional courage, I'm sorry, courage, like we got a lot of pushback when we moved outside of health to other industries that, you know, um, just declaring what's going on. We were considered sellouts um, to our profession. So, we, you know, we've, we've embraced that. Uh, and the smile and look of your face uh, suggests to me that I'm probably not the only one. Um, so, but that takes courage in itself. So our, our co um, consulting and coaching organisation is called Lux Consulting Co. Yes. Um, and interestingly, like within the realm of entrepreneurs, one of my coaching clients uh, is a kick-ass entrepreneur and, and we've partnered in a, in a podcast called Launch and Beyond mm -hmm. um, podcast, which is really about principles, a lot of what I shared today, which are transferable principles to all areas of life. So um, my biggest um, key is I want to see people kick the, day, uh, the lights out of um, whatever it is that they're looking for in success, but actually still be fulfilled in other areas of their life. So mm -hmm. to me, it's not a um, one area of success and your side harmony in other areas. So um, that's really the avenue through which I feel I could, I could reach more people was through the, through the podcast. So uh, in terms of engaging with us, by all means, you can reach out there. I'm on Instagram under my name. Perhaps you could probably put, um, put some links in there yeah. and, because people may have trouble spelling my surname. Um, we, we run um, retreats for people who we have run immersive programs for people where we spent three and a half days helping to deep dive into what makes them tick, help them identify their biggest fears and challenges and help them find within themselves either the courage or the strategies that will help them move forward. We can do that in a, in a group uh, coaching scenario outside of retreats or, or more individualized one-on-one, -on -one. just depends on what it is that people are looking for. Um, that's really the avenue through which uh, we're doing most of our work these days. Yeah. Well, I, I want to encourage uh, our listeners, our viewers to, um, to follow out. And if you haven't listened to Bettina's episode, um, I'll have the notes and link to that in the show notes too. It was equally as profound as valuable um, also. So buddy, I'll have all those links in the show notes too. Thank you. Um, it has been well and truly worth the wait for us to be together. I got a page full of notes here that I'm going to somehow <laughs> need to kind of condense into some show notes for this as well. So Buddy, any final thoughts that you'd like to leave our listeners with? Um, um, probably, you know, like we've, you and I have both been around um, healthcare for a long time and, and um, it probably only is in the last few years that um, I've probably, and by, by virtue of even just you reaching out, is I was probably not even connecting with you, even, even though we were aware of each other for a long time, there was still that gap and and um, and and distance, and I take ownership on the fact that me being me was was a big part of that. And I've realised that for me to actually have an impact and connect and have live my legacy, um, I needed to to model and lead that behaviour. And by virtue of that, that opens up situations, relationships, opportunities, and possibilities that I otherwise wouldn't have had. So, if you want to create change in the world, it does happen when it's you starts from you, you're right. It's much easier if someone says, here are the action steps, just do them. But if you're not the person who you need to be, and this is all the work that you've done with Jim Fortin as well too, which is an inside out job. If you don't become and be that person first, 
then you're going to get a different outcome. And so that's why the hardest work in mastery is about self and getting to the place where you're the best version of yourself and then acting from there. So that would probably be uh, my um, takeaway. Damn good place to finish, buddy. Take care. Enjoy <laughs> your afternoon and look forward to seeing you around the traps. Thanks, Angus. Appreciate it. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, you have to come and check out the Community Influencer Program. It's my monthly coaching program where we take all this material and I'll work one-on-one with you to apply, implement, systematize, and help guide you and your practice to the next level. Now, you can join me on over at adiomedia.com forward slash join. That's adiomedia.com forward slash join. I'd love to see you in there.